Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 10 of The Pragmatic Investor. Today, I'm joined by fellow essay contributor, Cameron Fenn. Cameron is a doctorate student in economics, and he specializes in machine learning and creating artificial intelligence models to support macroeconomic modeling. Now, today we had a great conversation about artificial intelligence and its implications for businesses today, the outlook for NVIDIA, and also how this affects the general macro market outlook. To wrap up, Cameron also gave us his pick for the Pragmatic Investor Portfolio, a company based in Australia which runs trailer parks. A very interesting stock indeed. As always, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Welcome once again, everyone. I'm joined today by fellow essay contributor, Cameron. Cameron, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right. So I thought a good place to start would be on one of your most recent articles, because you're pretty new to Seeking Alpha. But yep. on your last article, you got an editor's pick, and the title is quite interesting. A data scientist explains large language models and implications for businesses. Yep, yep, yep. So I guess what I was trying to do with this article is essentially, um, you know, com- convey to a lay audience or an audience of investors uh, what this new sort of AI innovation they're getting into, right? So the idea mm-hmm. that these large language models, people are like, okay, I can like type anything and it can respond just like a human. I think that generated a lot of buzz. Uh, but in order to really understand the implications of the model, you have to understand how these models are built, uh, what the new innovations are, uh, and um, why these innovations, um, or what 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 does the technology constrain from the innovations, right? Because I think for most investors or lay people, this looks like magic, right? It's like it's a computer that basically talks to you like a human and knows a lot of interesting facts. Sometimes it says stuff that is wrong, just like a human, but it it's like you know. It's not like it doesn't feel like a machine. It feels like talking to a human. And so there's a lot of sort of buzz and uh, excitement over this. But if you don't know how the models are built, then you can extrapolate and you have people saying things like, you know, I, I saw there was a Twitter video where it's like I used uh, a kernel used an AI to use a drone to target an enemy. And mm-hmm. when the drone realized that the pilot was getting in the way of, you know, the objective, the drone actually eliminated or in the simulation eliminated the mm-hmm. drone operator. Right. And this was found to be really like this was found to be, you know, not true. Uh, and if you don't understand how these tech works, you can get sucked into these sort of conspiracy theories like thing. If we make an analogy to politics. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. So that was my sort of objective. Yeah, it's uh, it's very interesting. You bring up those uh, limitations that AI has. Uh, I had a previous uh, host, um, sorry, guest on a couple of weeks ago who talked about them being essentially, you know, obviously very powerful models, but he referred to them also as the quote unquote bullshit machines. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So in your article, you also talk about the commercial implications for companies like uh, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Microsoft. So I just I just love to to understand a little bit. Uh, maybe if you can give everyone a background of just explain what the large language models are and yeah, what 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 your thoughts are on this for how it applies to to these companies. Sure. So the the sort of 
uh, innovative sort of uh, technique that large language models use, and they're all transformer-based models, which is just a particular type of neural network. But the secret sauce is the attention mechanism. And essentially what attention does is it learns a weighted average of your inputs, right? And it gives an output that's a weighted average of the inputs. Uh, but if you train this on a large enough data and have a large, you know, you have like 20 or 30 different attention mechanisms in a single model or more, um, and each of these each of these single layers pays attention to a different sort of thing. Uh, but if you have enough of these models, it, what it will do is when you have a sentence like uh, Joan is 80 years old, uh, does uh, is she uh, and she is going to the doctors? Uh, is this you know? Uh, or actually, Joan is 80 years old. Her birthday is tomorrow. What year will she? What what age will she turn? Right, and this attention model will will pay attention to the things like eighty birthday, and it will sort of ignore all the other texts, right? And this is the secret sauce behind the transformer model, where it pays attention to stuff that's important, and then it will start generating words that says like Joan is going to be eighty one because it's paid attention to these 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 important parts of the topic and not had much attention to the things that aren't important, right? Uh, and implications for big tech. I believe that this will be a rich get richer thing. With the minor exception of a little bit of worry about Google search over the horizon, um, mm -hmm. because it seems like chat GPT, GPT-4 uh, is quite an improvement over GPT-3.5 and chat GPT. And I think right now that's the model that you're using to evaluate all other models so that should tell you which one's in the lead right so if you have data scientists and they have all these open source models the way they're evaluating is is how well gpt4 rates their output right uh and so this is like the dominant model and of course this developed by OpenAI, which is basically like a microsoft subsidiary at this point right uh mm -hmm. and so the one thing i worry about is you know, what it will happen to Google search? Will A, it lose some share? And it might, it might not, I don't know. Uh, but the other thing mm -hmm. is, it's just more costly per search, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And you're probably going to have a mechanism where essentially what happens is um, someone types in a search query and they have a machine learning model that says, do I need to use a large language model or do I just do search like normal, right? But if a lot of queries end up wanting large language models. This will cut into Google's bottom line. Um, there's an article by Semi Analysis where essentially they calculated that you know each Google search uh, has 0.5 cents of profit per search, right? And mm -hmm. these models cost somewhere between 0.1 and 0.3 cents before all these innovations that I talked about earlier, uh, that I talked about in my article. Uh, hopefully that will bring that down, but. As of 2022, these the cost of per search, uh, if you use a large language model, is 0.1 to 0.3 cents, and that eats into Google's sort of margin, right? Now, if you don't use a large language model when someone does a search query, then that doesn't matter. But if you do, then profitability is weaker. Uh, other than that, though, I think uh, uh, big tech will benefit. And the reason they'll benefit is they have more data. Um, they have... You know, they have a lot of people that can build these models, but I don't think that's the biggest deal. And in the data science world, I think the main moat is data. It's not the model, right? Uh, mm -hmm. There are thousands of data scientists that can build large language models that compete with Google. The problem that they don't have is they don't have enough GPUs, 
and they don't have the data that Google has or Microsoft has or OpenAI has or Facebook has or Amazon has, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Like just Amazon, it has, you know, more transaction data than anyone else in the world. Uh, Facebook has more social and even with their sort of like Facebook advertising has, you know, preferences of people and again, what people click and stuff like that. Same with Google and Google has search. Uh, and so, and then all of them have internal code, right? So one of the big advantages, uh, one of the big uses of large language models is essentially that you can build, you can fine tune these models to help coders, you know, write code. Mm -hmm. And I pay $10 for GitHub Copilot. There are probably millions of people or tens of millions of people that pay, will pay $10 a month for GitHub Copilot. Uh, and so this is a huge business, right? And essentially if you get, if this gets better, you know, this could, you know, be a profit machine to maybe a smaller company like OpenAI. probably wouldn't be much of a drop in the bucket for other companies um, like the big tech. But they have mm -hmm. massive amounts of data, and maybe they can do something even better than Google or uh, OpenAI Copilot that will uh, 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 give them, uh, be more profitable, generate more revenue than something like, you know, whatever, $10 a month. Mm -hmm. So... Um, yeah, I mean, so, yeah, I think they have the, uh, walled gardens and they have more data than anyone else. And so I think, uh, large language models will predominantly benefit them. It's interesting because I was talking about this, uh, with another essay contributor on the podcast, and he mentioned that to actually run something like chat GPT at scale, like at the scale of Google search would be at this point, economically, unviable just due to the expense of those of that hardware and those gpus that are used um i guess i would disagree i think it's possible um i did the analysis in uh in my nvidia article and it's actually not that large i had another article where i talked about nvidia and sort of a short report on nvidia uh saying mm -hmm. the amount of gpus that is required to uh justify the market cap is beyond what is necessary but essentially no i don't so right now, uh, OpenAI has 30,000 GPUs for about 200 million queries a day. Google search, if I, these are numbers that I'm approximating, had 26 billion queries a day. So that's another, what, uh, order of 10, 10x, right? Mm -hmm. 100x? Yeah, 100x, right? Right. And so, yeah, and so, you know, 30,000 30, to, um, wait, okay, so wait, let me see, yes, so Google search, I think Google search was 2 billion a day, I'm not sure, uh, but it's essentially 10x, right, and 10x number of GPUs is not unreasonable, you have 30,000 right now with OpenAI, and OpenAI will get 300,000, if, if, for instance, they are the only large language model, and they do as much large language modeling as there is Google search. So it's mm -hmm. only you only need 10x more GPUs, uh, and even with that, um, there are innovations over the past three months since 2023 has started. Uh, quantization. There's there's a new technique called QLoRa, which is a combination of quantizations and uh, an adapter, which is just you know these are just large language models. There's a particular sort of techniques that you use to make these models more effective. Uh, there's QLoRa. There's uh, a model distillation, which has been a thing for a long time, but essentially what model distillation is, is um, you get a big model and it teaches a small model by giving the small model, the small model a lot of examples, right? Mm -hmm. And then 
quantization is obviously instead of using 32-bit float, you use like 4-bit float or something like that. So your numbers are less accurate. But both of these techniques have shown that they produce models just as accurate as the models without quantization, without Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, adapters is another thing in itself, and I don't want to explain that, uh, but without quantization and without distillation. Now, if you combine these things, you can essentially run a, I think, a 64 billion large language model on a single GPU. You know, mm -hmm. OpenAI uses probably five, six or eight GPUs per large language model per uh, uh, and per query or whatever. And so if you cut down from eight to like four or eight to two, then, then the 10x is going to be something like 2x or 3x. And so it's very doable with the new new innovations. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm sorry if I'm like not make, being clear. No, no, it makes perfect sense. I just wanted to, could you repeat the numbers then? So the search is done on ChatGPT versus Google search? Yeah, so against essentially Google queries, I think 2 billion searches a day, right? Right. Right. Right now, OpenAI is querying uh, uh, an estimated 200,000 large language model searches a day, right? Right. Okay. So that would be... It's a 10x. Let me... Let me uh, I can no, pull up two, my no, article. 200,000 would be... Two, 10x would be 200 2 million. million. 200, no, right. it's okay. 200... OpenAI is querying 200 million. Okay. Uh, All right. Or at least we, we, it can handle 200 million a day. Okay. All right. Okay, that, that, that makes a bit more sense. Um, it's very interesting because you touched on my next question because I was also going to ask you about NVIDIA. Uh, obviously, you have that article out which has a sell rating or what you might even say shorting. Now, in my other conversation with a fellow SA contributor, Trading Places Research, he was, he also, I mean, he believes the valuation on NVIDIA is very high, but he does believe in the growth story was the way he put it. Uh, he seems to believe. I'll give you his view, and then you can uh, you can rebut it and tell me what your thoughts are. He basically believes Nvidia is in a in a class of its own that there is no competition right now for for its GPUs or at least for that combination of GPUs and software. And he was talking about um, a little bit about what you're mentioning as well. The competitors, for example, Google, who is now coming out with uh, what they're calling AI accelerators or TPUs. And obviously right. that is how these companies are competing with NVIDIA. But so far, uh, there is no, in, in his view, there is no real competition competition to NVIDIA. Is that how you see things or you probably see things a little bit differently? Actually, yeah, I, I pretty much, uh, so I think in the medium term, there will be competition, but I generally see things this way. I see, I don't see many competitions in the short run. I mean, basically NVIDIA's gross profits are like 60% of revenue, right? So 40% gross cost, or gross, uh, yeah, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, cost, the, uh, what is it called? Uh, whatever. 60% uh, gross profit, right? So like, obviously people are looking at this company and are very interested in trying to take some of their business because it's hugely profitable. I've, other than Apple, I've never heard of a hardware company with such high gross profits. Uh, and so what this suggests is people are going to try to take NVIDIA's share, right? For sure. Mm -hmm. um, but in the near term, I don't think, and I would agree with uh, the other person, that there aren't any competitors to NVIDIA. Uh, mm -hmm. Near term. Near term. Uh, NVIDIA with CUDA basically dominates AI 
Uh, and the problem is CUDA. CUDA is basically a language that allows you to pro uh, tell uh, GPUs what to do uh, and is very useful in deep learning. And AMD doesn't have an alternative. There mm -hmm. are people, uh, George Hotz was one who tried to, uh, uh, who tried to write a CUDA-like uh, language for AMD, but he has since quit. I don't know why. He spent like two weeks on it. But like, I'm talking to the tech people on Twitter, right? And they are saying essentially... The probably the most value add AMD engineers can do right now is to write a CUDA like language for AMD. Mm -hmm. uh, so I am in agreement that until AMD uh, writes something like that, and until Google and Facebook, you know, sell their their TPUs or their specialized uh, 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 machine learning uh, computational units, um, Nvidia is the only company that is. Uh, you know, is the only uh, game in town. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, um, my difference with uh, uh, the other author is even if NVIDIA captures 100% of the market, it's not going to be big enough to justify the market cap. So that's where I differ from uh, okay, that's, the other that's author. Okay, that's very interesting. Now, in terms of the competition, you've mentioned AMD, um, Google as well. Who do you think is best positioned? Like, who is actually... Because I've... Heard good things about what Google is doing with TPUs. Um, what do you think about the the other companies? Who's going to challenge NVIDIA for the throne, in your opinion? Oh, I don't know. I mean, so there's one thing where Google is only offering their TPUs in the cloud because they want it as a competitive advantage. So in a sense, Google's not really challenging NVIDIA in the space of selling, you know, GPUs, essentially, or computational units, mm -hmm. right? Uh, because they're only using their stuff in the cloud. Maybe that I, I think their TPUs are better than uh, Nvidia's GPUs for uh, large language modeling, uh, mostly because Nvidia still has to. I think Nvidia is also selling specialized GPUs, but their GPUs also have to actually handle graphics, right? Because like people are still using them for playing video games and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I imagine the TPUs are more specialized, and I'm sure they've updated it over the years. Uh, but I just I think. A lot of people, well, I don't know if I want to say this, but again, you can only do that if you're using Google in the cloud, right? If you're going to buy a GPU on your own computer, I think NVIDIA is, again, the only game in town. Uh, I think of the other players, probably Google is the best position, but again, they're not selling GPUs, right? Mm -hmm. Or TPUs. So I, I, I would, again, say that, like, no one's in a great position. If AMD develops, so I will say one thing. If AMD develops a, a CUDA-like language, they will be in the best position, and they are in pretty good position in, in uh, machine learning inference. So, like, you can train mm -hmm. your machine learning models, and then inference, essentially, someone types in a command, like, you know, uh, explain World War II like I'm five years old, and the GPU, or the, a large language model would do something like that. That's inference, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so, with inference, it is much easier to use AMD GPUs, uh, because you don't need to use, uh, there's not so much CUDA-like interface that you need in training because training is much more complex than just inference, right? So in that aspect, AMD is already gaining share. Uh, and I think I, I read in one of the comments that something like uh, newly built, you know, servers, uh, uh uh, uh, basically have, you know, there's a large share of AMD, like higher than, you know, 10 or 20% that you would expect by uh, AMD's regular market share. Um, these hyperscalers are actually buying more AMDs than they used to. Uh, and probably that's because of inference. 
Uh, mm -hmm. You don't need a NVIDIA GPU to do inference. You don't need CUDA, that much CUDA to do inference. And so it's easy enough to do it with AMD, which uh, has basically GPUs that are cheaper per flop, essentially. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Yeah, yeah, that that, that makes <clears throat> sorry, that makes that makes that makes perfect sense. Um it's interesting because you talk about NVIDIA. <clears throat> sorry. It's interesting because you talk about NVIDIA as having a dominant market position, but obviously you probably think the valuation has gone too far at this point based on that analysis of the market uh, share. Is there a price at which you would consider buying NVIDIA? Is that something that you're you're waiting for? Yeah, I mean, so I, I talked about this before. This is sort of like, I was hesitant to say sell because it really wasn't an article about NVIDIA's valuation or NVIDIA's financial analysis. It was really an article on the angle of this is what how much large language models will demand GPUs uh, for from NVIDIA, and this is why that's false, right? And there are a lot of other aspects of the company, like I didn't touch upon valuation, I didn't touch upon their Internet of Things and their, like, other aspects. I did not touch upon, like, how they have a cost advantage in GPUs, right? Because I, I don't know semiconductors. I don't really pay attention to, like, their mm -hmm. other uh, aspects. Uh, I don't really spend a lot of time understanding data centers or hyper uh, mm -hmm. hyperscalers. Uh, and so my main angle was coming from this is, you know... This is a machine learning person's take on what the demand for large language models would be. So I don't really have a valuation on buying NVIDIA. Um, right now, it's too expensive based on mm -hmm. just this demand. But again, I was I hope I was clear in my article and basically saying, you know, this is not like a fully fleshed uh, uh, stock pitch. This is really talking about one particular angle, right? And mm -hmm. if you have a thesis that takes into account other stuff, I'm not saying you're wrong, and maybe it is a buy, or maybe it is, you know, a buy. I doubt it, but I didn't do a full, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it, a um, holistic view of the company, right? Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, I wanted to know a little bit more about your own background. Uh, I'm reading your profile here. It says you're a PhD economist by trade who specializes in using machine learning to improve macroeconomic models. So please go ahead and tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, so actually I'm uh, still a PhD student, but uh, I guess <clears throat> I uh, is not quite clear on that. But yes, yeah, so the re I use machine learning models to build, or uh, machine learning algorithms to build macroeconomic models. And the machine learning models I use are the same. I mean, I don't really use large language models in my uh, work. I trained some transformers in the past, but um, you know I don't really spend that much time with them. But uh, the main thing I spend is I do uh, Bayesian machine learning on essentially uh, macroeconomic models. So these are models that sort of predict the implications <clears throat> of the economy. I have I will have a new article on Seeking Alpha at some point mm -hmm. discussing uh, uh, Schrodinger, which is a company that uses sort of MCMC, so Bayesian techniques, to mm -hmm. do uh, molecular. Um, uh, what do you call it, like molecular, in, like designing molecules and ligands for, for you know, diseases. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I'm happy to be able to use my Bayesian, uh, ex you know, Bayesian experience to talk about that company. Um, but that's, you know, the main thing I do like, you know, 
you know, predicting inflation, you know, mm-hmm. like people have seen the GDP now kind of models. Those are the kind of models I use, you know, building these structural models that can predict inflation or what happens if the Federal Reserve drops interest rates by 2% or whatever. What will the impact on the economy be? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's very interesting. So basically, if I'm understanding it correctly, you would take different macroeconomic indicators and put them into this uh, artificial intelligence machine learning model to kind of forecast what your what your view is of the of the macroeconomy in the future. Yeah, I mean, economists. I don't want to say they're a little bit behind on the curve, but they're doing they do things differently than a machine learning person, right? So mm-hmm. you're really capturing what a machine learning person would do. You get some data, you put it in some black box model, doesn't matter how it works, and it cranks out, you know, an output, right? With economists, what we like to do is we like to build like really structural models. So we'll have like, you know, this is what happens to uh, capital depreciation, right? So every at every period, capital depreciates by a little bit. And then the the capital that you have remaining goes into a production function, which determines how much, you know, goods you produce. And then the people that you have buy these goods, uh, uh, but they also have to balance, like, how much they spend now versus saving for the future. Uh, and so in a machine learning approach, you just put in all these indicators into a model. These the, None of the parameters make any sense. They're just, like, random parameters, like linear regression parameters, but more complicated. Mm-hmm. And then they output a uh, output, right? But with economics, we build all these models. So all these parameters have sort of real-world analogs. And the hope is essentially that because they have real-world analogs, you can understand economic dynamics more effectively. And you can also do things like counterfactual analysis, right? So mm-hmm. you cannot say like if inflation went down by two percent, what would uh, what would uh, in this black box model you said you can't say if inflation went down by two percent, what would the output be? Uh, you can only say uh, if inflation went down by two percent in the data, uh, what ha- uh, you know other things that are correlated with going down by two percent. What is it? What what does uh, a decrease in 2% changes correlations, right? And there's a difference between causation and correlation. With the mm-hmm. structural model, essentially, I can make uh, inflation go down by 2%, and this is a counterfactual environment. If I use a black box model and inflation goes down by 2%, this is a correlative model, right? So it's what what in the real data is correlated with going down by 2%, whereas in my structural model, we don't even need real data. We can use the model to sort of essentially... Uh, write a counterfactual even without you know being disciplined by the data. It doesn't work as well as I'm making it sound, but uh, that's what the attempt is. Okay, well that's that's very interesting. So what would your model? What is your model telling you now? Is that something that you're you're looking at what, now? What, what, what is it telling you about inflation going forward, for example? Yeah, I mean I don't know. That that's the funny thing because I actually don't build these models. I actually build the math. You know, I do the. Mm-hmm algorithmic, you know, data crunching behind it, right? So I say, like, this is how you should build your models. And then economists take the models that I build and they say, okay, we're going to forecast inflation and stuff. So I don't, I I mean, I know more economics than the average person on the street, but I would say I don't know, like, I don't spend my time, you know, really doing economics. I'm really, like, improving these models, right? So I spend time looking at the model and saying, this is one thing you can improve upon it. Okay, so when you look at investing... Do you focus more than on particular companies? Do you? Have, sorry, I'll start again. That sentence. So, when you look at investing, okay. are you just looking at particular companies then, or I mean, do you use macro at all? Do you have a particular view of what the Fed is going to do? What 
how recession is going to affect us. That's so the macro isn't real. Even though you build these models, the macro isn't something you focus on so much. Nah, it's actually kind of funny. As an economist, I understand how bad macroeconomic forecasting. <laughs> so <laughs> right. um, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't do it. You know, if a company is, I guess what I do is I like you know quality companies at a you know a reasonable or cheap price right and if i'm gonna buy and hold for 10 years which i don't actually do but i'd like to do um you know i would like to buy quality companies uh regardless of essentially the price or the economic condition i will say though i spend a lot of time investing in foreign countries and then i do actually take into account things like exchange rate risk inflation and stuff like that simply because you know, in in a developed country, you just take these things for granted. Um, but if your country is returning twenty percent a year, uh, in in lira or whatever, you got to look at like what the inflation rate is, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Of course. Of course. Now, uh, I've been doing this thing where I get previous guests, uh, get all my podcast guests to kind of contribute a stock to what I'm kind of calling the uh, the pragmatic investor podcast portfolio. Okay. So okay. is there any particular stock that you are quite bullish on? I'm, I'm looking here, for example, uh, your first article here was on PAG Seguro, P-A-G-S, mm -hmm. and yeah. you have a strong buy rating on there. Yeah. After earnings, I was a less, um, less, I don't know, less enthusiastic about the company, let's just say. Uh, I would not put a strong buy now. I'd probably either have a buy or hold. Uh, but I have to write another article for that. I'm not going to do mm -hmm. that. Uh, right. Well, is there any company right now that you are particularly bullish yeah. on? Maybe, maybe on well, the AI sector. So I don't have any. Uh, actually, I don't have any stocks on the AI sector that I'm bullish on. But I will say, do you want like? Can I give you run of the mill like 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 a stock on the Australian stock exchange that has like a uh, hundred million uh, in uh, market cap or something like that? Yeah, or do you want something like you know S and P? Uh, this is okay. Th I, so, this is your pick. So. Okay, it can be anything. I will do, uh, hold on, let me see if I can find it. Uh, I mean, any, anything that's, you know, reasonably investable and not, not your friend's startup, because unfortunately... Yeah, not my friend's startup. Yeah, 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 yeah. won't be able to, okay, so, to, to get access to that. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think. Okay, so there's a couple. Um, so I like trailer parks in Australia. Do you want to hear that pitch? <laughs> I got a couple, but I, uh, so I like trailer parks in Australia. There are two sets of trailer uh, park companies, Ingenuia Communities and Lifestyle. I, uh, no, uh, and uh, what is the other one called? Um, this is embarrassing because I have this stock in my portfolio. Address. Oh, well, there's Ingenuia, Ingenuia Communities and... And another company, it's not my portfolio, but I've seemed to have forgotten. Anyways, there's these two trailer park companies. Actually, let me just let me just search it up. Uh, can you give us the stock ticker on those? Yeah, lifestyle communities. Yes. Yeah, so the stock ticker on lifestyle communities is ASX LIC. And Ingenuia. Let's see what the, uh yeah, so ASX uh so the two tickers are INA in the Australian stock market and LIC in the Australian stock market. So both okay. of these are 
Both of these are essentially trailer park companies, and the reason why trailer park companies are so uh, lucrative is essentially you as a trailer park owner own the land, uh, and then the person that lives with you owns the mobile mobile home on the land. Now, mobile homes are actually sort of a misnomer. These things are very hard to move. They cost thousands and they cost maybe twenty or thirty thousand dollars to build, and they cost five or six thousand dollars to move. So, like. It's, you know, from a, you know, you know, sort of a, a economics perspective, it's really hard to move. So what does that mean? What that means essentially is you have a lot of pricing power uh, for these communities. And even though you have a lot of pricing power, because these homes cost very little and because the land is very little, your the price, the rental price that the, the tenant pays is much lower than, let's say, a single family home in the suburbs of the area. Right. And so when you look at mobile homes in the US, what essentially you see is there's a progression of price raises, right? So Sam Zell has a uh, equity lifestyle partners or something like that. And there's other other uh, other uh, trailer REITs or trailer park REITs essentially. And what mm-hmm. you see by them is I think uh, equity lifestyle partners has um, basically, it's had earnings growth or free cash flow growth because they're REITs, right? So mm-hmm. uh, funds from operations, Funds from operations grows from the 1990s to 2020. Every year, the funds from operations increase without missing a beat, right? This is through the great financial crisis, this is through the housing crisis. Every year, stock went, uh, the pre- earnings went up and it, you know, it, it, uh, compounded at a CAGR or something like 20 or 30% a year over the whole period, right? So, uh, every year, right? And so you look at the U.S. market, and the U.S. market is quite saturated. It is quite hard to build new trailer parks uh, Mm -hmm. because people don't like them because they associate them with, you know, just, you know, not as wealthy people. Right. Uh, uh, And so, uh, but you have a lot of these mom and pops operating these trailer parks that, you know, you can buy the park and you can increase the economics by uh, charging more for the land, right? Um, And so Australia is just in the beginning stages of it. There aren't actually that many uh, mom-and-pop trailer park operators, but there's uh, not much regulation against building new trailer parks, and mostly mm-hmm. trailer parks, when compared to rent in the uh, in, in Australia, uh, are much lower, the cost is much lower compared to a one-bedroom in Australia than a trailer park in the U.S. compared to a one-bedroom in nearby cities, mm-hmm. right? And so this suggests to me that they have a lot of room for not only pricing power increases because the, uh, the uh, but they can also build many more trailer parks, right? And each of these trailer parks, you know, if you look at the dynamics, based on what people charge, you know, you can very easily get to, like, a you know a cap rate of 10 percent right or 12 percent right and mm-hmm. if you have a cap rate of 10 or 12 percent and you're reasonably leveraged then this is an uh 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 return of equity of you know 30 or 20 or 30 percent so mm-hmm. uh, uh a very effective way to compound capital by buying sort of essentially land and turning it into trail park so that that's one no two stocks i like mm-hmm. ingenuity communities and uh lifestyle uh what is it? Lifestyle partners. I get that confused because Sam Zell's thing is also called lifestyle uh, equity hmm. lifestyle partners. Right. But, so I don't want to say the same thing. Yeah, lifestyle communities. I'm I'm interested. Then are you um are you based in Australia? Then no, 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 no. I'm in Boston, um, Massachusetts. Uh, the reason why I like foreign companies, I spend a lot of time 
I, 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 like this sort of, uh, you know, Rocket, uh, the VC firm like Rocket Internet or whatever. Anyways, there's a, there's a VC firm. Essentially, what they do is they take U.S. and Western ideas and they start out companies in the uh, developed world. Mm, okay. uh, and so they started a couple things like uh, uh, Jumia they started, which has since ended terribly, but, you know, whatever. Uh, and they do a couple of these other things that have actually turned out fairly well. Uh, but it, I sort of follow that idea. I look at U.S. and, like, developed world ideas and I see where are these ideas being applied elsewhere, right? So... One of the big ones was, of course, um, trailer parks, right? It's just trailer parks. Um, I have a couple other things. Um, you know, just looking at the big tech companies, like cloud is huge. So, like, cloud mm-hmm. will be huger even in China. So, I'm buying some of the, uh, you know, Alibaba is definitely a scary company to own at this point. But I'm, uh, you know, I have a small position in that, partially because I think cloud, you know, obviously is huge in the U.S., will be huge there, too um so interesting stuff like that, if, right? if you look at their cloud segment i i believe it hasn't been doing that well as of recent yeah 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 but i mean i'm thinking long term right and again mm. you know yeah so yeah it's but, a, it's you a know good, them and tencent are the only companies that are really going to build this this cloud business i think it's a, it's an interesting way of investing i i've definitely noticed that you know i've been living in spain most of my life and I, I can definitely see how those trends, even in Spain, are just I mean quite developed. But you can see all those trends in the U.S. kind of uh, slowly make their way to Europe. And sometimes right. I, I often think, oh, this is so popular in the U.S. I could just open this business. You know, I'll just do my micro brewery yeah, right. here. And um, yeah, right, right, right. So just going back uh, real quick to the to the trailer parks. So you like this idea in Australia? Um, what does it take exactly for the company to to build this trailer park? Is essentially it's it's just land, and I'm guessing providing some facilities, right? Some kind of utilities. Yeah, yeah I mean, essentially land, and then you have to hook up, you know, sort of like sewage and like electricity and stuff mm-hmm. like that, right? To each okay. spot. Um, if you want to get fancier, which I don't think people technically want to do economics wise, but you mm-hmm. can include like a rec room or like pool or something like that. But uh, from what I've heard, that doesn't have as good economics. When you include these things, it doesn't actually attract, you know, higher rent to justify the uh, increase mm-hmm. in amenities. So okay. I think, I don't know what lifestyle part, uh, lifestyle communities in Ingenuia, Ingenuia do, but I imagine um, they're pretty economical and pretty efficient with their capital. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. And you believe that this segment is, is poised to grow, so demand people are going to want more more of these trailer parks because they're, they're you mentioned they're much cheaper comparatively to to living in an yeah. apartment yeah yeah that's the thing they're much cheaper and they continue to be cheaper uh even though they have a lot of pricing power yeah essentially yes uh, and and the other thing is they can build more unlike in the u.s where you, it's really hard to build anymore it's fairly easy in australia to build more trailer parks mm-hmm yeah, that's very interesting. I've I've also been focusing a lot on international stocks generally. I think the the good growth opportunities then, you know, it also offers some kind of a protection against uh, these kind of trends of de-dollarization that that we're seeing here. It's always right. always good to be globally diversified. Right. Uh, it's been great having you, Cameron. Before we log off, uh, please tell everyone where they can find you on the internet and what you're doing on Seeking Alpha. Yeah, I mean, you can find me on Seeking Alpha. I think I'm Cameron Fenn. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Cameron Fenn one, uh, and then I have a LinkedIn. You can just search Cameron Fenn and uh, a GitHub. If you're interested in my academic work, Cameron Fenn uh, And so, yeah, 
that's uh, looking forward to uh, interacting with people. Thank All you right. very much, James. I appreciate it. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on, for coming on, Cameron. Um, it's been great talking about this stuff, and you know, I hope we can do it again sometime. All right. Sounds good. Thanks. All right. Best of luck, Cameron. See ya. Thanks.